Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord today. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from Galatians chapter 5. So I'd invite you to turn up in your Bibles at this time to Galatians chapter 5. As Brother Mike Henry mentioned, the songs that we've been singing have been steering us towards something very specific. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage, Galatians 5 and verses 16 through 25, and be looking at the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, what that should like, what we should be doing in a sermon that I've titled, Walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5, and in a moment we'll read verses 16 through 25. The very moment a person is saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within that individual, and he begins a process that is known as sanctification. This is the process by which God is preparing that believer for his heavenly inheritance. He's preparing him to be welcomed into eternity in heaven. You're not any less saved than a person who's been saved for 50 years because sanctification doesn't affect your salvation. The moment you're saved, you're saved and you're saved permanently. But sanctification is preparing you for your heavenly entrance. Nothing a person can do can affect their salvation. Since you cannot earn your salvation, you also cannot lose your salvation. And since God is the one who saves you, who is the one who saves you by believing on him, he is the one who also keeps you as you believe on him. And 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 3 through 5, the Bible speaks about how God is the one who maintains that salvation. It says there, just as he maintains our heavenly inheritance, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So the Bible says that for every believer there is a heavenly inheritance waiting for them. God is keeping it in his safety deposit box, not one that he entrusts the key with us because we lose it in about five minutes, but he is keeping it, he is maintaining it, he is securing it for all eternity. That is the heavenly inheritance. But the Bible goes on to say about how he also keeps and maintains us as well it says who speaking of the believer are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time God saves us and praise the Lord God keeps us saved as well and sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit that he does once we're saved and is continually doing until we're received into heaven that work is different person to person. But with everyone, it begins the very moment that you're saved. For some, it lasts a great number of years because maybe you were saved at a young age. You've been saved now for 50 years. God has been sanctifying you for 50 years. You've been a tough nugget for God to work on. But for the last 50 years, he had been working on you and been preparing you for the heavenly inheritance which one day you will be received into. For others, the process was quite short as they believed on Jesus, maybe in their dying moments. Either way, the process of sanctification is the Holy Spirit's work where he is daily making believers more into the image of Christ. 
Jesus is the one who has brought us salvation. He is the one that we are striving to be more like once we're saved. We trusted in Christ for salvation. We recognized that our way was just not cutting it, that we couldn't do things on our own, that all of our intellect, all of our wisdom, all of our strength was failing in some capacity, and we were falling short of God's perfection, and we realized that only through Him would that salvation be possible. And so when we surrendered ourselves to His leading, submitted ourselves to all of the work that He has already done, we accept Jesus as the only answer and the only hope for that salvation. And he granted us that salvation. And living like Jesus, which is what we're supposed to do once we're saved, means that we're walking in the Spirit. God sent us the Holy Spirit, as we just sang. The Comforter has come. He has come to lead us into all truth, the Bible says. He has come also to testify to us of Jesus Christ. And this passage that we'll be looking at here in Galatians chapter 5 shows us what walking in the Spirit looks like. So your Bibles are open. I'm going to read the entire passage, verses 16 through 25. Follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these— Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, walking in the Spirit isn't exactly rocket science. In fact, it's pretty straightforward. You don't have to be saved for 50 years to understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. You don't have to have read the Bible from cover to cover 30 times to understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. Without you ever reading this passage, I'm sure you can offer a pretty decent explanation as to what it means to walk in the Spirit. It's explained very simply how every Christian should live. Can I offer a disclaimer though this is basically in a nutshell walking in the spirit is how every christian should live but something we need to understand first not every christian wants to live this way most christians with even a rudimentary knowledge of the bible will will be able to explain what walking in the spirit generally looks like however few christians actually do it consistently we may go through seasons where we're in tune with how the Holy Spirit is leading in our lives, but then we'll shift our focus and we'll venture down another path that is being led by our flesh. Sometimes we'll correct it rather quickly. Other times we'll continue to feed our flesh. And what happens is we end up in a whole mess of a situation that we know we should have avoided. Many Christians are learning tough lessons the hard way that could easily be avoided. The frustrating part is that we allow ourselves 
to fall off course, knowing that it isn't going to pay off and there will probably be consequences that we're going to have to deal with for making this decision, making this decision and going off course. I have lost count in my own life of how many times I have said something that I know I shouldn't have said or done something that I know I shouldn't have done. And in the moment, I even knew that if these words come out, I'm going to regret it. That if I do this thing, I'm going to regret it. And I still have lost count of how many times I've done or said something that I know I is, I'm going to regret. Have any of you ever been there? Or is it just me? Well, you put your foot in your mouth, and before you put your foot in your mouth, you know what you're going to do is not going to go well, and yet what you end up doing is opening your mouth wide enough just so you can put your foot in. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we say those things? Why do we do those things and go those places where we know we're going to feel so much guilt over, where we're going to be regretting it just immediately? We feed the flesh, don't we? We buy into this idea that it's going to be so enjoyable, that the pleasure is going to overtake any sort of guilt or remorse that we're going to feel, and it never works out that way. We never, after having indulged in the sins of the flesh, do we think, you know what, I feel pretty good about doing that. You know, I, I really needed to get my foot in my mouth because I hadn't had it there in a long time. No one ever thinks that. And yet this is what we allow ourselves to do even when we know it's going to hurt. Our tongues can get us into a lot of trouble, especially the more that they are untamed. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Some of the, the old relics of our past life, of our unsaved life, they creep up because they're clinging to us, not wanting to let go. And they'll show their ugly head in our conversations from time to time. And the words come out without us even thinking about it because that's how we used to talk. And the word will just come out and we'll think, where did that come from? I haven't spoken like that in 10 years. And then all of a sudden, whew, it just flew out. And the, the bad thing about letting the words come out is that you can never stuff them back in. Once it's out, it's out. Once it's been said, it's said. And this is why it's so important to be walking in the Spirit. When we're consistently walking in the Spirit, there is less opportunity for our conversation, for there are our actions to be ungodly. You're not going to be perfect, don't get me wrong, but there's less opportunity for it because the things that you're filling your heart and your mind with are more wholesome and more godly, that there's less of that old nature that is going to creep up and come into your conversation and to be showing itself in your actions. It doesn't take much to ruin your testimony, to lose all credibility in your witnessing just by slipping up through your tongue or doing something that you shouldn't have never done or going someplace where you vowed you'd never go again. In Proverbs 19, verse number one, the Bible says, better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Walking in the spirit is the key to walking in integrity. So as we take a closer look at this passage here in Galatians chapter 5, I want you to notice first the command. The command. Look at verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Throughout the, the book of Galatians, and if you haven't read this small book, it's six chapters, go home and read it. It is so rich of just wonderful truth. 
And what you'll find is that throughout the book, law and grace, these two things are contrasted to show that a person cannot be saved by an adherence or an observance to the law, but in fact, they're only saved through the grace of God, through faith alone. The law was only intended to reveal God's standard of perfection. Here is what he requires, God says, and he gave the law to the nation of Israel. And if you want to go back and read through the book of Leviticus specifically, and even Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments. But God wasn't satisfied with just Ten Commandments because he gave another 603 commandments, 613 in total, of just religious and everyday practical living. Here it is for you to live your lives according to. And it is, honestly, it is an impossible standard to live up to. And you know what? God intended it to be that way. Because he, he, he knew none of us would be able to live to the level of perfection that the law required us to live up to. But he was designing it that way to point us to his ultimate solution. The main purpose of the law was for us to realize how sinful we were, how much we fall short of God's standard of perfection, and then to go running straight to God, recognizing that we need him for our salvation. In Galatians chapter 3, in verses 22 to 26, if you want to turn back a couple pages, listen to what the Bible says in these few verses. Galatians 3, 22 to 26, the Bible says, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. So, we're all guilty. Every one of us are sinful. You're never going to match God's standard of perfection. The Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." While it is incredibly important to read your Bible, to study the Bible, to spend time in prayer, to worship God, to evangelize, to conduct ourselves according to certain behaviors and standards, spiritual life is not measured by how passionately and how consistently you do these things. When we start using these things as our measuring stick for spiritual life, when you are starting to just look at how well you're attending church and how often you're reading your Bible, and if you're saying, well, I read it a hundred times over the course of the entire year. I read it cover to cover, so therefore I must be uber spiritual, right? Because how many can say they're reading their Bible cover to cover a hundred times in one year? No one? What an incredibly unspiritual bunch you are. No, I'm not doing that either. That's quite a feat. But when we start measuring our spiritual life according to these things, such as church attendance or reading your Bible or how much time you spend in prayer or how often you volunteer in church and whatever it may be, when you're doing this and in making that your measuring stick, you have become slaves to legalism where we're only focused on the outward expressions of what we can do. Walking in the Spirit is all about the Holy Spirit doing a work in you. When we're more focused on living according to a set of laws, even if these are good things that we're doing, we are indirectly sur uh, uh, suppressing the Holy Spirit, who is the only one able to produce the true works of righteousness in our lives. 
You should be reading your Bible. You should be spending time in prayer. You should be evangelizing. You should be in church. And the list goes on and on of what we should be doing. But when you're doing these things to make yourself appear more spiritual, you're not truly walking in the Spirit. Living a holy life doesn't come from our performance for God, but from His performance in us through the Holy Spirit. It is pride and it is ignorance that leads Christians to want to live up to a list of rules, foolishly thinking that we can somehow please God enough by doing enough, all the while we're suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is why the command is given here in verse number 16 of Galatians chapter 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking refers to a way of life. Walking refers to the things that you don't have to be thinking about while you're doing them. The things that come so naturally to you that you never have to plan and make time for them, but you just find yourself doing these things over the course of the day. Walking also implies progress. We're moving forward and doing something that has become a habit. We're moving forward from where we were and we're moving towards where we ought to be. And if we're walking in the Spirit, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is the one who is guiding us as we should go. He is our GPS, if you want to think of it that way, along this journey of life as we're getting closer to heaven. In emphasizing the central work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer here, some have adopted the mindset of, I'm going to let go and let God. Have you ever heard that? Let go and let God. Well, wouldn't that be nice? I'm going to let go and I'm going to sit back and God, you do it. I'll be right here as you're doing the work. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to budge. You're the one who can do it. Which the idea can be helpful if it's applied the right way. If you're understanding that it is only through God's power, that it's only through God's strength that, and his resources that you're going to get to where you need to be, you have the right idea. However, some have taken this to the extreme where it's let go and let God means to be completely passive and completely lazy about what they should be doing. They're literally going to sit back and do nothing and hope that God does everything for them, spoon feeding them the entire way and just pushing them along in this journey of life. While God is not looking for us to suppress the Holy Spirit and to take charge ourselves, He is also not looking for us to sit back and do nothing. God expects us to have a significant role in the Christian life and to be active in everything that the Holy Spirit leads us to do. So we need to follow His command and walk as we are led. When we're walking in the Spirit, we find the power for living the Christian life comes entirely from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from how well, you can, uh, how well you attend church, how often you attend church, or anything else. It comes from entirely trusting in the Holy Spirit the same way that the power of salvation comes entirely from Jesus Christ. You added nothing on, on the salvation part that completed what Jesus had done halfway. He does everything for the power of salvation just as the Holy Spirit does everything for the power of sanctification. Just as man's will was active to believe in Jesus Christ to receive salvation, man's will needs to be active to follow in obedience to the Holy Spirit's leading in sanctification. It's not as if we're saved and then we just sit back and allow the Holy Spirit to work on us, to clean us up, to prepare us for heaven, like we're almost enjoying a relaxing day at the spa. That's not the way it works. We're supposed to be active. We're supposed to be working on it ourselves. It, we're not saved to sit on the sidelines and do nothing. As we mentioned last week, 
We have to be actively working on preventing sin from having a major part in our lives. We need to be actively fighting it off. We need to be actively fleeing temptation. We need to be refusing sin at all costs. In Romans chapter 6 and verses 12 and 13, the Bible says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. There is work involved, absolutely. But it is worth the work. The Holy Spirit is showing us how much better our lives can be and should be and how to get to that point. All we have to do is to trust His leading and have the courage and the boldness to follow as He leads. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the Bible tells us, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It won't always be the easiest, but when we're walking in the Spirit, as it says in verse 16 of chapter 5, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is to live each day as if you're walking side by side with Jesus. You're letting the Word of God dwell in you richly. You're patterning your life after the example of Christ. So follow the command and walk in the Spirit. But notice second, the conflict. Because the command is given, but there is something that stands in our way. There is a conflict that we have. Walking in the Spirit is no easy task. As we pointed out, walking in the Spirit is not passive, it is active. There are going to be all sorts of obstacles that are going to stand in your way and try and prevent you from walking in the Spirit. And the biggest obstacle, the biggest conflict that we have is not out in the world, it's not even Satan, it is right home. It is our flesh. Our flesh is the biggest hindrance keeping us from walking the way that we should be walking as believers. Now, the, the flesh refers to that old nature, the selfish desires of our hearts, which are often set against the desires of the Holy Spirit and thus leave us with quite a predicament. Even though we're saved and we've been made new creatures in Christ, we still are living in our same flesh, which is still unredeemed until we are received into heaven. So the moment you're saved, God gives you spiritual life. And he secures you in himself. He guarantees that you have a future home in heaven, but you're still occupying this physical body that is unredeemed. Eventually, our body will join our spirit as becoming redeemed, but that comes much later. Until that time, we are a redeemed spirit-living individual living in an unredeemed flesh, and that creates a great conflict. And this is what the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 7, in verses 18 to 23. He said this, he said, For I know that in me, that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present within me. 
For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. You know, what he's saying, which is really profound, is he's recognizing this inner conflict. He is recognizing that his soul, that his spirit has been made new. He's a new creature in Christ Jesus. But he's also recognizing that he's living in this unredeemed body and he's struggling with the conflict of a redeemed soul and an unredeemed body and he's literally being torn apart. He says, up here in my mind, I know what I should be doing. But my heart and my flesh are telling me to do something completely opposite. And telling me that I'm going to have great pleasure and satisfaction in this. But I know it's not true. And even when I wake up, he says, and I, and I know where, this, where each decision has taken me. And they're taking me in completely opposite directions. My heart and my flesh want to go here. My, my knowledge of God is telling me, no, you, this is the path you should be going. Because this is where the Holy Spirit is leading. He said, I'm torn apart. I find myself doing, he says, though things that I know I shouldn't be doing. And the things that I know I should be doing, I'm struggling so much to do it. Because there's an inner conflict. And what we see is that the flesh is the part of the believer that functions in opposition to the Holy Spirit. And Paul said that he struggled with this so mightily because he knew what he should be doing. He knew better. But his heart was pulling him in a different direction. Have any of you ever given someone the advice and said, just follow your heart? Any of you ever done that? No one's going to admit to it. You're all liars. Every one of you have said this. At some point, you've said this. Every Disney movie preaches this. <laughs> it is the biggest lie, the worst advice you can ever give. Follow your heart. Have we forgotten about what the Bible says about the heart? Jeremiah 17, 9. I don't believe it has anything good to say about the heart. It is deceitful and desperately wicked, the Bible says. Who can know it? So when you tell someone to follow their heart, you're giving them the worst advice possible. Follow that which is deceitful and desperately wicked. And this is what Paul is saying. I know what my heart is dragging me to. And it's just horrible. And it's not going to be to my benefit in any capacity. But I'm constantly torn. Even when he knew better, he found himself doing that which he knew he should have never done. It wasn't that he found out that he was wrong after the fact. He knew what was right ahead of time, what he should have done ahead of time, and he still struggled not to indulge in the flesh. When an unsaved person does something wrong, they often feel guilt, maybe they feel remorse, regret, and similar feelings to that. They know they did something that they shouldn't have done. Often the painful consequences that they have after the fact lead them to such feelings, but either way, they feel bad when they know they've done wrong. When a believer does wrong, they don't just feel bad. There is an inner spiritual warfare raging inside of them. The unbeliever doesn't experience the same spiritual warfare because the Holy Spirit is not living within them. They're unredeemed all the way through. All the sinful things that an unsaved person does are all consistent with his sinful nature because that is what his flesh knows. He's acting according to his nature. He may still feel guilt, remorse, regret, disappointment, but because he's still unsaved, 
That sinful lifestyle doesn't lead to the inner turmoil that a believer has because the believer is the only one that has the indwelling Holy Spirit to show him that he was wrong and he should never have done that in the first place. And the believer is only indwelling those who are truly saved. Only the believer knows what the inner conflict looks like because the Holy Spirit takes up that residence within us while we're occupying this unredeemed flesh. So the two are steering us in opposite directions. While the flesh is pulling us in one direction that will lead us to pain and to misery and to disappointment, while falsely promising pleasure and satisfaction. It never advertises, hey, come down this way and enjoy all sorts of pain and misery. It falsely promises satisfaction, pleasure, joy, excitement, all the good things, or else it would never be appealing. But it's all false. And the Spirit is pulling us in another direction, that is offering everlasting peace and contentment and joy. And the flesh can never deliver on its promise of pleasure and lasting satisfaction, at least not permanently. The flesh majors in offering only temporary satisfaction. And that is why our hearts are driven to one thing after another, right? Because you give into one thing and you find out it wasn't as good as what you thought. And then the flesh comes at you with something else. Why don't you try this? This is going to be better than what you did yesterday. Well, okay, I might as well try it, right? And then it doesn't work out. And then the flesh leads us to something else. Well, you know, that wasn't as good, but what about today? Because there's a newer version of what you did yesterday. It's sure to be better this time around. Over and over, we're having to invent something new and find some new ways to, uh, to, to, to buy into the ideas that the flesh is going to actually offer us something good and lasting. We can't settle on one thing because we continually find everything good this world offers is never going to last. You buy a new car, and before you know it, before the year is even over, there's already a newer model and a nicer model of what you have parked in your driveway. And all of a sudden, what you thought was a brand new car seems suddenly incredibly outdated. As long as we're following our flesh, we're never going to be satisfied. There, there may be some temporary satisfactions some temporary fulfillment that we receive from our flesh, but we're never going to have that lasting satisfaction and fulfillment. It ultimately fades because there is no lasting satisfaction found in the flesh at all. Paul realized this, and that is why he said in Romans chapter 7 and verses 22 to 23, after he says, I find myself doing that which I know I shouldn't, he says, but I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Believers don't always do what we know we should be doing. There are times where our thoughts are good, but the execution is lacking. The spirit often gets in the way of the flesh, but the flesh also at times wins out over the spirit. It is incredibly frustrating when you find yourself saying and doing those things that you know you shouldn't be saying and doing. And that is why we read Paul cry out in Romans 7.24 where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He basically comes to the end of himself and he says, I give up. I can't do it. I'm constantly struggling because of this inner turmoil that is pulling me one direction and the other direction. And he says, I'm just ripped apart. I know what I shouldn't be doing and yet I find myself doing this time and time and time again. And what I know I should be doing, I rarely end up doing this. And he says, who's going to deliver me from this? Where is the release? I don't have enough time in the day 
to list the number of times I have allowed my flesh to win against the Holy Spirit, even when I know I'm going to regret it. And afterwards, I'm furious with myself for saying or for doing that which I knew I would immediately regret. It can be incredibly discouraging, but the good news is that with as much warfare as we're going to deal with internally as Christians, it is warfare where victory is possible. We have a powerful ally on our side that is working things for our good, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who powers us to victory. He is the one who guides us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who will help us be victorious over all the lusts of the flesh. The key word is help because he will not do everything for us. We have to be actively working on avoiding temptation, on cleaning out those things in our lives that have no business being there. And you all know what those are. When we're not actively involved in resisting evil and cleaning out the filth that is in our lives to do good, when we're not doing this, we're not being led by the Holy Spirit despite how mature we think we are because we're in church every single Sunday and we're praying and we're reading our Bible and we're volunteering for VBS and we're doing all this stuff in the church. I don't care how much you're doing. If you're not following the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're not actively doing what you should be doing as a Christian. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 3 through 4, the Bible properly calls believers soldiers because it lets us know there in that capacity that we're fighting and we're active in this fight to fight off sin and to fight off the temptation of sin. The Bible says there in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, it says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We are to be actively fighting off sin in our lives as soldiers. Don't sit on the sideline. Don't expect it to be taken care of on its own. Don't expect that by ignoring it, it's going to go away or that you can sweep it under the rug. Fight it off. Get rid of it. Clean it out. Change your life. Make sacrifices. Do what needs to be done in your home, with your family, in your workplace, wherever it is that needs to get done. Things need to be removed, whatever they may be. Do what has to be done and do it right away. Don't think it's going to disappear on its own. We're to be actively fighting off sin as soldiers. We're also, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, believers are likened to athletes who are running in a race. Notice what it says here in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. It says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run... Not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. You see, we have the Holy Spirit, yes, as believers, but we still have to be fighting, we still have to be running and submitting ourselves to his leadership. We're not walking side by side with the Holy Spirit as if we're his equal. We're humbly following him as he leads us. The Holy Spirit is leading every believer every single day. He's doing this to the point that we don't have to pray for him to lead us. He's doing this. This is what he's going to do. We just have to pray for us to be obedient and willing to follow him as he leads. That is the conflict. And notice third, the contrast. Because what the Apostle Paul does here in Galatians chapter 5 is he offers us a contrast between the, between the flesh and the spirit. Notice what it says in verses 19 to 23. It says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, 
adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you also in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. By means of encouraging believers to godly living, we are given almost a laundry list of products, of results, of walking in the flesh compared to that of walking in the Spirit. And verses 19 to 21 give us the list of the flesh, which are the sins that lead to spiritual warfare in the life of a believer because all of them, everything mentioned in verses 19 to 21, are against the desires of the Spirit. Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7 and verses 20 to 23, Mark 7, 20 to 23, Jesus said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So Jesus was teaching that man's basic problem is not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. All the evil things that we will do, they originate right here within us. We can't point the finger at the world or point the finger at Satan and say that someone else made me do it. Someone else is not the problem. We are. We're the problem. Despite what the world teaches, no one is good. We may not be as evil as we can be, We may even do some nice things here and there, but according to the standard of good and evil, according to the standard that God has set as far as what is required of man to have entrance into heaven, which is perfection, no one is good. If you're assessing this honestly, you'll notice that it starts very early. No one needs to be taught how to sin and how to be disobedient. You ever realize that? No one needs to be taught how to do something bad. Exhibit A. (laughs) Levi just turned a year old last month. And this boy has mastered already in a year being born how to be bad. He will get into things that he knows he shouldn't be getting into. Because we'll tell him no. He knows what no means. Okay, even at a year old, he knows what no means. Because as he's reaching for something that he shouldn't be reaching for, we'll say, Levi, no. And he'll look at us, and he'll even shake his head no. (laughs) And you know what he'll keep doing? He'll keep reaching that hand while staring at us. Can you believe that? I didn't sit him down one day and say, okay, son, here's how you do it. We're going to say, don't do that. But what we want you to do is to ignore it and stare us down our eyes and into our souls as you're moving your hand closer to the object which we told you not to touch. That, son, is how you be disobedient. Go and do likewise. I didn't have to do that. 
I didn't have to sit him down and teach him how to be rebellious, how to be disobedient, how to do any of these things to be sinful. We're born with this natural tendency to be rebellious. Every sin that we see here listed in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, are commonplace to those that are unsaved. They're all works, they're all products, they're all the results of living in the flesh. The idea is not that these sins were even one-time actions, but the normal and the continual practice for unbelievers in the course of their life as they're walking in the flesh. A believer can walk in the Spirit and can avoid these things, or we can give into our flesh and fall victim to these, things, to these sins. But the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer can never again be enslaved by these sins. The list of the sins of the flesh fall really into, into three basic categories. Sex, religion, and relationships. The sexual sins speak of unrestrained sexual indulgence without shame, without concern for what others might think or even how others might be affected. The religious sins are sins that are based on self-effort, on man's, on man's insistence that he can be good enough on his own. It reduces God down, down to some man-made version of God with a whole new set of standards that somehow are attainable to us if only we can be good enough. High self-image is extremely important in each of these religious sins. The sins that are relating to relationships speak of having the wrong attitude and the wrong behaviors, hostility towards others, and really an unrestrained anger. And this list is not exhaustive. Everything we see here in these three verses is not the only, only sins that we're guilty of or the unbelievers guilty of, but these are clearly the sins that are predominant in the culture of the day during Paul's day and even today. Again, each of these sins mentioned is not referring to a one-time occasion, but they are a continually practiced habit. It is commonplace for unbelievers to habitually practice such sins because they're daily walking in the flesh, and when you're daily walking in the flesh, these are the daily products of walking in the flesh. But the believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit who is constantly warring against the flesh, steering the believer to walk in the Spirit and avoid such sins that are mentioned here. The believer's new nature in Christ prevents him from ever being enslaved by such sins. We're still going to sin, but we cannot be enslaved to sins once we're saved. And the fruit of the Spirit is then contrasted in verses 22 and 23. Notice these verses again. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Walking in the Spirit leads to believers putting away the habitual, ongoing evil works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is produced in every believer, even if it is only barely seen in some Christians. There are nine fruits mentioned, nine results, nine products of the walking in the Spirit that are mentioned in this, in this passage, and each of them serve as the outward indicator of that inward salvation. When Jesus spoke of how to distinguish between a genuine believer and a false prophet, he said this in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 16 through 18. He said, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. 
A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So each of the fruits that are mentioned here in verses 22 and 23 are important. Love is not an option. Love is a command. We're to love one another the way Christ loved us and the way Christ gave himself for us. Joy is a deep sense of well-being that lives in the heart of the believer who knows that he is forever kept by God and forever God's child. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are telling you. It doesn't matter if the ground beneath your feet seems to be crumbling. You can have joy in every circumstance because you're a child of God and nothing can change that. And that's what Paul was writing about in the book of Philippians. Joy in all circumstances. Peace. Peace is the steadfastness in our minds that comes from our relationship in Christ. Knowing that no circumstance can ever change the fact that you forever belong to God and that God is always in control. God never goes on vacation. God never takes a coffee break. God never is off the clock. He is always aware of what you're going through and is there to encourage and help you with what you're going through. Long-suffering is the ability to endure challenges, to endure trials and afflictions and troubles and the like with calmness, knowing that God is working all situations for your good. Even if you can't see that right now, you know that he is in control and that even this situation is being worked out for your good. Gentleness is having care and compassion for others, not being condescending, but uplifting, edifying as Christ has demonstrated with us. Goodness refers to specific acts that can be done for the purpose of encouraging and for exhorting others, specifically with fellow believers. Faith refers to loyalty, it refers to devotion and, and being trustworthy. And this is what Christ demonstrated when he came down to earth and he humbled himself and became a servant and even to the point of going to the cross on our behalf. Meekness is power under control. Despite what many might think, meekness is not a sign of weakness. It is the ability to accept all that God is doing in our lives without disputing or resisting him. It is the ability to be humble. It is the ability to patiently be submissive while remaining free from the thought of revenge and retribution. And temperance refers to the ability to exercise restraint, avoiding temptation, not allowing yourself to be put into situations where you will do something or say something that you shouldn't. Temperance is applying diligence to self-control. And the believer who is walking in the Spirit doesn't need a system of law to produce the right attitude and to produce the right behavior. It comes from God within him. And number four, the conquest. And I'll be very quick with this. The conquest. Verses 24 and 25. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Everyone that has believed on Jesus Christ as a Savior has their flesh, as it says there in verse 24, crucified, destroyed, annihilated with the affections and lusts. That old nature has been completely destroyed by the miracle working power of Jesus Christ and thus believers can never return to that which is dead. In Jesus Christ, we're now free. We're not free to live as sinful as we want because we don't have to return to that, but we're free to live for him who saved us. And walk in the Spirit who is guiding us. Sin is still a, re a reality in our lives, along with the temptations that we're going to face out in the world, but the power that sin once had over us has now been destroyed. Those influences which seem to control us and to drive every one of our lusts and every one of our passions no longer controls you when you're in Christ. 
It was as if our hands were handcuffed when we were unsaved, handcuffed to sin, and now we've been permanently and forever released by the grace of God. Sin may still affect you, it may still tempt you, but it can never again put the handcuffs back on and bound you. We are completely free from sin's eternal judgment and dominion, even if we're, stealing, even if we're still dealing with the temporary consequences of it. The point is that through the grace of God and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin. We don't ever have to allow it to win in our lives again. God has freed us to now have the ability to live completely for him, which is what we were originally created to do. Walking in the Spirit ensures the fellowship that God intended on each of us to have, and it is available to all who believe on him. The flesh has been defeated, and the Spirit reigns victorious. So let's stop giving in to the losing side, and let's start embracing victorious life found in walking in the Spirit. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have the reminder here that we are indeed, Lord, freed from the bondage of sin. Lord, I know that we're still struggling with temptations, giving in to the flesh, I pray, Lord, that we would listen intently to how the Holy Spirit leads, understanding, Lord, that there is a work that is required of us to do. Lord, it's not just to up, up to us to sit on the sidelines and to wait for him to do something. But, Lord, we need to be actively fighting as a good soldier, and we need to be running in this race, Lord, as a good athlete, recognizing, Lord, that as much as the Holy Spirit is there, he is helping us, and Lord, we need to contribute to the work that needs to be done in cleaning ourselves up. Help us, Lord, to recognize the command to walk in the Spirit so that we may never fulfill the lust of the flesh. Guide us into all truth and give us the courage and boldness to step out in faith where the Holy Spirit leads. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.